Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to Season 3 of The Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world, and read my latest articles, or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Agile and sales and marketing, two areas that are not known for applying Agile by creating and maintaining an Agile mindset on a global scale, and how the lessons learned apply to every area of the organization. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Anthony Coppage, a global Agile digital sales transformation lead at IBM. Anthony, welcome to the show. It is a delight to be here. This should be fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, so why don't uh, we start by um, giving a little, little background on yourself as well as your current role as Global Agile Digital Sales Transformation Lead at IBM. Sure. Well, uh, go back in time. I started in sales and then moved into marketing and communications. And I'll skip all the boring details around that. But in 2009, um, many years into my career, I was afforded the opportunity to come on into software as a service company. The first time I'd been worked for a tech company um, and the CEO hired me to be the director of communications. And I asked what that meant. And he says, I think you should figure it out and tell me. So um, it was one of those really great work environments. And on day one, I walked around the 100 employee at the time company. I think I was employing 99 and uh, I got to the development room and here's this dark room with a lot of people, um, working in a really cool looking space. And they had this 60 foot wide, 10 foot tall magnetic whiteboard that had these index cards held in place with pawn chess pieces. I remember this. And I was like, that is so cool looking. Like, what's that? They're like, oh, that's our wall of work, our, our scrum wall. I'm like, like rugby? <laughs> I had just had no idea. And uh, so fast forward and what I, what I found was it was really helpful to reach out to both our existing clients and our prospects by seeing what was coming down the pike and what we were addressing. And so being in there with the developers and observing their retros and seeing how they did sprint plannings and their standups was my first introduction to anything agile. So 
I immediately uh, went back to marketing and comms and said, "This our work doesn't feel like that. Our work feels like hair on fire. Everything's an emergency, always responding. And these guys seemed so cool and collected. And I just said, I want that. So my boss empowered me to, uh, to do it. And we put, man, to the best of our ability, a scrum marketing organization together in, in six months or less. Uh, just ran it headlong into a wall because the interrupt nature of being responsive for sales and being uh, able to pivot based on what our partners were doing meant that the estimation and the rigidness of trying to get to where we could develop like software developers was never going to happen. And then that led me down the journey of Kanban, Lean, Six Sigma, and, and learning about all flavors of what I would call business agility. And so it really has taken me down an interesting path to where now at IBM, uh, many years later, I lead, as you pointed out in my intro, the digital sales agile transformation. So we are at a global level applying a business agility and a sales context and, and an enterprise scale at that. So it's, um, it's quite the challenge and an amazing opportunity. Yeah, now I'm looking forward to diving in here. So, you know, when we talked prior to recording, uh, you shared a little bit about how sales and marketing both could be more agile, um, as well as what that can look like even at scale. So can you share a little bit about your experience at IBM and what you mean by sales agility? Great question. So I'll answer that first. For me, I I feel like so much when people talk about agility, they're thinking about flavors of agile or frameworks. They're talking about Scrum or scaled agile framework or DAD or less, or just pick it, right? There's a lot out there. And I, and I, I'm almost an anti-framework guy, really, honestly, because I just want the values and principles to shine through. And so if I had to say it, I would say that business agility places the customer or the prospect at the center. And then you surround that with leadership, teams, and operations, right? So that what we create is the delivery and creation of value, not the delivery um, of stuff. So it's an outcome-oriented, client-focused mindset to deliver value at scale rather than worrying about extracting value. And um, that's a that's a hybrid of things that came from uh, Evan Laybourne at Business Agility Institute, who I, former IBMer by the way, uh, who I deeply respect, and a, and a guy uh, named Steve Denning who wrote a book called The Age of Agile, which I just cannot recommend strongly enough, where he talks about that shift from shareholder value or how much value can you extract financially, um, and determining value as fiscal, to the creation of value, which is what's in it for them. And that value could be fiscal. There will be some return there, but it's also more than that. And it's that greater view that I think is really at a, at a time and place where we are, um, you know, sort of almost post-pandemic and the world shifted and it's the great re, uh, what do you call it, great resignations going right. on. There's, there's really, the timing couldn't be better to reorient towards the creation of value and not the extraction of value. And so that's exactly the the culture shift, if you will, that I think Agile exists for. Agile at, at heart is a culture change. If you change the culture, you can change anything. If you don't change the culture, very little will stick. And so what the first thing you have to do is meet people where they are. So in my role in sales, in the digital sales organization, you might think of that as inbound. The, the first touch is often digital for prospects helping to redefine the way we even approach how we manage towards that, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if I give you my opinion on it, it's that, uh, Greg, that we 
we see management as how do you help support someone and remove things and get it out of their way? And how do you skill them up? That is the full sum circle of all that management entails. So it's not directing, it's not inspecting, it's not uh, cajoling. These are the, the, the old ways of thinking around management. And instead it's about how do I go support that person and help skill who they are up, not just what they do. And it's that holistic look at the person that creates this culture shift because now we're doing things that are far more um, about the whole person than about the delivery of, of outputs. So the outcome-oriented mindset starts with understanding and valuing so that people feel seen, heard, and valued. To your point about um, the agile principles, too, I think the valuing the individual and um, the individual is part of a team and that mm-hmm. democratization of uh, really creating value. I, th- I think that's something that to, to, I think to your other point kind of gets lost sometimes in frameworks like Scrum and, and other things. I'm, you know, certainly I've used pretty much most of the, the agile frameworks and stuff like that throughout my career, but I think uh, we're aligned in, in that, you know, the, the principles have to come first. And sometimes, you know, you need to, you need to pick the right tool for the job, not necessarily apply the same kind of thing to every, to every uh, scenario. Yeah, and it's and it goes beyond the tools, right? Because it's interactions, it's it, it's individuals and interactions over process, right? So we 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 want is to say how do we figure out how people can feel seen, heard, and valued? And the reason is not just to create a squishy, nice, warm environment. There's actually a pragmatic benefit of this, which is when you have feedback, sure feedback is a gift, but what we're learning to do is scale and aggregate feedback which is then actionable intelligence. So your strategy is directly impacted by those doing the work, those closest to the client, those closest to the prospects. And that feedback loop then creates the ability to pivot and not assume that the strategy is right, but validate how to improve it and make it better so that the end result is a better outcome for the, for the end client. Because if I make your world better as my client, my world's better. Right. It's it's the it's the byproduct effect. That's why I really like that outcome client centric mindset, because profits and revenue are byproducts of creating and delivering value. Yeah, well, I think that's a that's a great segue to my next question, which is, you know, we're we're talking about one team working well together. Now let's, let's add two teams working together, you know, so sales and marketing, sometimes those relationships, um, have histories and, and are fraught, uh, so to speak, but how can sales and marketing work better together in an agile environment? I think that if you're looking at it was as sales and marketing, that would be part of the problem, right? So it's not sales and marketing, it's sales with marketing, it's marketing with sales. So there's not a single prospect that I'm aware of who goes to your website, you know, your customer, you know, whatever the website is and says, oh, you know, I cannot wait to fill out this form and click through here because then I'm going to be part of a nurture drip program. And then I'm going to have my inbox filled with some great new PDFs. And then someone's going to reach out to me on LinkedIn and message me from this company. And then I'll have three salespeople talk to me. It'll be so great. No one's signing up for that. Right. Right. And that's because even in small organizations, sales and marketing are what you described, Greg. There's some level of 
yeah, they work together, but there's often some tension. And that's just something I've seen time and again. And I think most of us have, if you've been around sales and marketing much, it tends to be some tension to manage there. Um, and so agility creates this shared set of understanding, a common North star. And so far, I would go so far as to say that you really need shared OKRs, objectives and key results, so that what we're doing is focusing on the same end result, the same outcome together. So we are touching uh, the prospects at different portions of the journey that they're on, which by the way, is not linear anymore, right? It's a very nonlinear journey. So what we're doing is creating a, a seamless experience so that we, they don't think about, oh, here's a marketing piece and oh, here's a sales piece that might be happening internally on our back end, but we don't want the, the end user to feel that at all. We want their experience to be with the brand and to feel like they are getting what they need when they need it on their timetable. So the only way that I know to do that, especially at scale, is having sales with marketing. And even if you make the distinction of two different departments, organizations within your business, you still have to present together, which means you need to work together. And the way that happens is through communication, coordination, and collaboration. And you don't get a collaboration without coordination. And it's impossible to have coordination without communication. So the first thing is how do you get them to talk and share and want to. So I think agility creates a way to say if the values are X, Y, Z and our, and our principles are A, B, C, then we get to align on the way we come together. And if you are smart enough to align the OKRs for them, now you have people working towards something together, even though they're handling different parts of it. And so that to me is the answer. It's, it's not and, it's with. So the with requires a shift in mindset and in operations. I like that. I like that. So now let's, let's add the global component to it, right? So, you know, IBM uh, has operations in, at least according to Wikipedia, over 171 countries. So anybody that's worked in a, in a, a global multinational, you know, requires processes, changes to those processes yep. to be communicated across geographies, time zones, cultures, so on and so forth. Um, you add to this the the rapidly changing environment that you're talking about as far as agility and everything. So, you know, question here is, you know, how does a large global organization operationalize agility and ab adaptivity in their sales and marketing, you know, across across the globe, basically? You know, where, where does it start? How is it sustained? I think as with any organization of any size, you have to have executive buy-in and sponsorship. Um, you know, it's just the reality, I think, and we do. So when, when I think about that, that makes it helpful because there are people talking about how, what agility means and it, what it means for us to be agile and not do agile. And, you know, it's a process. Uh, IBM has a, has a, a strong and long history of doing a lot of things and being very innovative in a lot of ways, but we're also a really large organization. And, and because of that, there are challenges that come with that, just like they are with anybody that's large. And so we do this by one bite at a time. And there's just no secret sauce to that. You, you go have small successes and you do it again and again and again, and it grows. But don't let that sound like bottom up. That's not just team agility. That's part of it. But there's also the shift in the way you go about setting your um, 
your objectives, uh, shifting to client centricity, shifting away from extracting value to creating value. So there's a, there's a leadership and management component, and there's also the team component. And it takes both. It, it, again, pointing back to Evan Laybourne at Business Agility Institute, he has a really great article where he talks about um, that it's not top down and it's not bottom up. It's like brewing tea, which is infusion. So if you keep adding tea leaves, you end up with bitter tea. That's bottom up, right? If you keep adding stuff from the top and keep pouring water in, you you lose the the flavor. And so it now becomes watered down. And neither one are good tea. But the good tea isn't really about the the how much water and how much tea. It's really the catalyst, right? There is some of that that you got to figure out. But the catalyst is the consistency. And whether that's cold or hot brew, that catalyst is the way you're consistently applying that agility over time so that it's seen, felt, and experienced throughout the organization at every level. And this is hard. Um, This is part of why I'm in the job I'm in, because (laughs) it's not an easy thing. And so what you do, um, you know, I think for me, my take on it is, to manage the tension, right? There's times where I really would rather just say, just go do this, it'll be better. But that's not helpful because what I'm trying to do is bring people along in their understanding. I want people to think differently, not just behave differently. And I've I've used this several times, so uh, pardon me if I've said it before to you, even Greg, it's the the idea of, of, of like the diet industry, the weight loss industry. I find it ironic that the weight loss industry is built on recurring revenue because if it worked, Right. It wouldn't right. Be recurring. So it's, but it is, and, and it's not that it doesn't work. It does work. The problem is, is the moment you stop doing their program or their thing, you revert back. Why? Because you changed the behavior, but you didn't change your mindset about what was the root cause. And I had to go through a lot of personal trauma therapy is from, from my own childhood. And, and one of the things that the therapists have taught me over the years is that if I change my mind about it, then my behaviors will follow. But if I don't change my mind about something, the moment I'm triggered or the moment there's something difficult, we will revert back to what doesn't work if for no other reason that it's comfortable and we know it, right? And you think about this with management. Management who's been micromanaging will default back to that no matter how well you train them if you just teach them to do it a different way because ultimately they want that control or that perception of control. So you have to change the mindset around it. You have to show the harm of micromanaging to the individual, not just to the organization. And what you're showing them is a way to think about it differently, to see the whole person and not just the outputs of that person. This is what we're talking about. So changing that transformation as I, you know, as in my title is a from state to a new to state, not an optimization of the old thing, that's not a transformation. It's an it's a completely new version. But let, much like the caterpillar to butterfly analogy that's often used, the DNA of the caterpillar is identical in the butterfly, same organism. But the expression of that DNA is very, very different. Even though it's the same, it doesn't resemble itself. And that's on purpose. Talking still about large organizations and and agility, can the resources and scale of a large organization be an asset? I mean, we often hear about oh, well, you know, it takes forever to get things done around here and bureaucracy and, and all those things, you know, can can resources and scale actually be a benefit and, and an asset instead of being a liability? Yeah, I mean, anytime you have, 
right? The grass is always greener, no matter which side you stand on when you look across. Because if you think of the the big companies, they're always looking at the small one going, man, they're so nimble. They're so quick. They have so little overhead. And then you look at the small uh, companies and you're like, they're looking at us going, man, she's, she's got all this great stuff. She's got all those resources. Can you imagine what we could do with all that? Like right. it's, you're never really satisfied. You're always looking right. at the other thing, but, but there's value in both. You know, I think the value of our largesse is the resources and just the wicked smart IBMers that are available to help move needles that matter, um, especially in a time when we're bringing about a lot of change. Because that change is hard. I don't care who you are because human, right? <laughs> any human, any organization is going to change is always bad in the short term. Jeff Hook says, one of my former CEOs. And, and I agree with that statement. So my point's not to say it's not bad. It just doesn't have to be um, painful. So what we want to do is reveal, meet people where they are and reveal what something is and isn't and then walk them towards what could be. And there's always that dip, right? If it's Virginia Satir has the, the stages of grief, or if you've got Tuckman model, or I mean, pick, pick any of them, right? They always have a dip before it gets better, always, because human. And what I teach our, our leaders and managers is that all we can do is promise to walk with our people through the valley. That's yeah. all we can do. They have to choose it, and they have to choose how fast they want to go through it or how slow they want to go through it. We would prefer for them to go through it faster, but you meet them where they are and you walk with them through it, and that's the promise. And if you do that, if you do that really well, people will buy in and believe because the actions are louder than the words. Uh, along the lines of working with leaders, um, what's, what about future leaders here? You know, how, how do you... How do you teach this mindset to future leaders? Are you know are some people just more inclined to a, kind of get agile and, and agility in general and adopt it, or you know can can even the training be operationalized in some way? It's a really good question. Uh, I know there's a lot of opinions on this subject because I've read them. I will tell you, for me, when I finally really got it, um, circa 2012, it was like someone. I, I realized something. It was, I had been the the guy doing, you know, sales leadership different from everybody. That doesn't work. You can't do teams and you can't do this. I was doing stuff that was agile in, in at heart. I just didn't know that. Right. Yeah. So someone had already codified this group of people had codified ways of thinking that I believed already and was told wouldn't work and it kept working. Um, so in a sense, yeah, I guess I was, I was built for agile in a sense, but Really, I think it's just about if you find value in in others and doing things with and through and for others, Agile is going to make a lot of sense to you. Uh, if you find that you want people to do things for your benefit, um, Agile is probably not going to work for you. Um, but it, it's really about empowering those closest to the work. It's the inverted pyramid of serving those and those doing the work being the ones we're, we're put in charge. I'll never forget having a conversation with an executive at IBM early on when I was introducing cadences and how we would roll things out um, for iteration-based work. And I remember this executive looking at the idea of an iteration plan. And he said, so we're going to be able to tell them what to do every week. And I said, nope. They're going to tell us what to do every week, right? It's, right. it's the opposite. And, and that's because I really, truly believe that that feedback loop is the key, the key to actually operationalizing strategy so that strategy is more than a good idea, but it's operationalized with excellence. 
excellence being being the very best, doing the best with what you have. And so what we have to do is take that and then improve on that. Yeah. So you've uh, you've developed something called the retrospective radar as a way of turning qualitative data and feedback in order to find patterns and turn it into quantifiable actions. Can you talk a little bit about this and, and maybe give an example of how you've been able to apply it in your work? Sure. So, Greg, the retrospective radar um, is my idea that I've had for a while. I've just called it different things, done it different ways. But ultimately, I manifested a version of it at IBM for sales. And what I did is I, I found a way for qualitative feedback to be aggregated, prioritized, and quantified. Most of the time when someone gives a verbatim feedback, it stays in the room. Yeah. It stays in the air for as long as they say it, and then it's gone. It's not captured anywhere. Or if it is captured, it's captured on a whiteboard or in a note somewhere, and then it's gone as soon as the meeting's over with. We weren't holding on to really useful feedback because though it's unstructured data, it's still data. And when I realized that I had this idea of how do we actually use this at scale, so at IBM, I had 26 teams that I was um, rolling out through this process for agile digital sales. And I was seeing in their retrospectives and in some of their standups I'd show up for every so often just to, just to look and observe was a lot of the similar issues and some of the similar victories were happening all over the place. But there was no way for a team in Philadelphia to talk to a team in Dallas about it, not because the technology didn't exist. There was no process. There was no thought around how do we share that insight. And so I kept seeing this as, and I said, okay, so I have a way to approach this. So what I did is I, um, I had us work in Mural. Mural is uh, interactive whiteboarding software for real time with everybody as if you're standing at the whiteboard, you just do it uh, with little digital sticky notes. And what I did is I just had them do their retrospectives in Mural. So what delivered value? What did not deliver value? What's one thing we can do to improve next week based on what you're sharing? And the key of this was they would come to the retrospective with one, two, three things that they wanted to share that was worth sharing with the others. Because remember, in a sales environment, I don't have a team of developers where everybody's working on the same product. These are individually motivated, individually compensated people. So to make the team aspect work, sharing is the key. So where rising tide is now lifting and floating all the boats. So what I did is I had them do the retro there. And then I overlaid Pat Kua's Starfish for Retrospectives, which is a, a way of when you're done and looking at your self-prioritization to say, what am I going to start doing, stop doing, keep doing, do less of or do more of? And I overlaid that on top of Stephen Covey's circle of control, influence, and concern. And I said, anything in the circle that controls you. So what are you going to choose to start doing? Stop doing, keep doing, do more of or less of. That's for you. But then what would you like your manager to start doing? Stop doing more of, keep doing or less of. And then what are the systemic issues that you find, you know, with our systems or processes at large that our senior leaders, you would like them to start doing, stop doing, keep doing, do less of it, do more of. And what we would do is capture those. So we captured the verbatims right there in Mural, exported that, and then aggregated it so we could report on what feedback was for senior leadership for us to stop doing. What was the feedback from managers to start doing? What were the things they wanted us to do less of and where? So we contextualized the feedback, we aggregated it, and then because it's unstructured verbatims, I ran it through Watson Natural Language Processing. 
And I had a way to actually look at keyword analysis, frequency, sentiment, emotion, and tone, and then report on patterns and anti-patterns that we would see at scale because now it wasn't a complaint. Now it was a data point with a narrative, right? And some weight to it because we could score that and say, this happens this frequently. And we were able to start addressing some systemic issues that sure everybody knew about, but no one had taken the time to try to understand the cost of that, that the opportunity cost or the business cost. And so by doing so, we were able to scale feedback to actually influence the, the strategy, the way we went to market and how we served our customers and our prospects. So that value was immediately felt. And in fact, when the reps saw that their feedback led to change because uh, part of our tooling was to represent, hey, what's in progress? What's already been completed that you've asked for? When they saw the vast majority of, frankly, easy things they're asking for were taken care of, they gave us more feedback and better feedback because it was worth their time. So the retrospective radar became a way to understand feedback as not just a gift, but as actionable intelligence. Well, and it it doesn't, Surprised me that they gave better feedback even the next round because I mean you know how many times have you know I've sat in meetings and I feel you feel like your words are you know maybe valued to your point in in the in the moment but then they kind of disappear in the ether or they get erased when somebody cleans the whiteboard and you know exactly. maybe it's anecdotal and five years from now somebody remembers one thing that you said or whatever but what does it really you know what impact does it really it's have? hard to act on that right exactly yeah and so to to be able to actually quantify that so i i think that's i think that's amazing and i i can see how that's a, that would be a it would contribute to a, a positive feedback loop right which is the the point of of meeting those kind of meetings in the first place but you know again so they they rarely work that way unless there's a way to really record and take action. on. Yeah. And I think that there's value for it for any team, right? So if it's HR, if it's software development, if it's project management, it really doesn't matter. Feedback is how you actually innovate and improve. So we have to find ways to make that a priority. It's not a nice thing. It's a necessary thing. It's required. And when it becomes part of your operational cycle where feedback is normalized and operationalized, that changes how quickly you can pivot in the market and how you can go to market in whole new ways you wouldn't have thought of um, on your own. And that's really, that's the value. And again, it goes back to the values and principles of agility, which is why I'm such a fan. Wonderful. Well, one last question before we wrap up. Um, Do you have any recommendations for something that our audience can read, watch, or listen to, to learn more or just get more insights on what we discussed today? Well, gosh, there's so many uh, great resources out there. That's hard. Uh, I will tell you, I did mention it earlier, but I would say that The Age of Agile by Steve Denning is a must read. Um, There's just so much gold in there. He just drops gold all the time. Um, I would also uh, point to Turn the Ship Around by uh, Captain David, our former Captain, Navy Captain David Marquette. Um, His idea of push control down, have assurance of technical competence and and, uh, and, uh, clarity of mission of of not having to give orders is is such a refreshing way to think about leadership. Um, I use it all the time. And then, you know, I'm sales and marketing. And so I came from that background. To me, um, there's this phenomenal book um, that I think sales and marketing would both benefit from um, called The Challenger Customer. 
And that book was fantastic because it really talked about in complex sales environments, you're not dealing with a decision maker anymore. You're dealing with a plurality and that to understand that you have to get to the challenger customer. It's super interesting um, read. I thought that was super helpful. And then I'll just do one more as a plug for a friend of mine who wrote something that I found fantastic. If you want to know how marketing got to where it is and every seller should, by the way, um, there's a book called Death of a Marketer by Andrea Freyrier, where she introduces the concept of agility and marketing um, based on the lessons learned in marketing from when it first began. I mean, it's a true historical book, and she does a lot of great job of citing sources to tell the backstory of how marketing got to where it is and then offers a path forward. So that would be another book I recommend. That's great. Wow. Yeah, that's um, there's there's a couple there that I was not familiar with. So I, I've got some reading of my own to do. <laughs> so wonderful. That's great. <laughs> Well, Anthony, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, for those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? LinkedIn, um, probably the easiest way, Anthony Coppage on LinkedIn. I also have a medium.com account that I post there. I'm on Twitter, um, you know, normal, usual suspect kind of things. But uh, yeah, I try to be out in the space as much as I can. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Anthony Coppage, Global Agile Digital Sales Transformation Lead at IBM for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy. 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.